You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Um, A.W. Tozer, a uh, famous theologian, author, writer. Uh, many of you have probably heard his name. He wrote a book called Knowledge of the Holy, which has kind of been a contemporary Christian classic. He once said, the most important thing about you, the very most important thing about you is what you think about God. And I think he's right. But this morning, I think the passage that we're diving into challenges us to look at the flip side of that very equation. Not just what you think about God, but what does God think about you? And what do you think God thinks about you? When you think about what God thinks about you, what do you think about? I had a friend growing up named JT, and I would, once I became a Christian, I would invite him to church, and I would say, would you come with me? And he would often tell me, I can't go in there because I'll be struck by lightning. His thought clearly was that when God thinks about him, God thinks destruction. God thinks wrath. God thinks punishment. God thinks you've gone too far. You need to be paid back. But is that really what God thinks about when he thinks about you? What do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? Now, so often, what this is usually linked to, what it's usually tied to, is how we even think about ourselves. When I'm going through life and I'm having all sorts of experiences and I'm doing my job and I'm going through all my school responsibilities and I'm navigating all the relationships and family dynamics that I have, I'm always getting verdicts, I'm always getting judgments, I'm always getting opinions on who I really am. Good enough, didn't make it. Reject, not promoted, try harder, D student. And these verdicts come in left and right and there is an association of what you need to do in order to be thought well of. And we begin to think that way about ourselves. We all walk around with a running script of who we really think we are and what we think we're really like. What our biggest problems are or what we're really worth. We tell ourselves stories and narratives, sometimes based on our past, sometimes based on our accomplishments, sometimes the sin that we've done to others or the sin that's been done against us. And often the way we think about ourselves is the way we think God thinks about us. The way we think about ourselves is often how we think God thinks about us. When my buddy JT would wanna walk into church, he would see himself as I've gone too far, I've made too many mistakes, I grew up in Las Vegas. Heck, if you're ever gonna make mistakes, Vegas is the place to do it. And if you're ever gonna feel like I've gone way outside the confines of God's grace, Vegas is the place to do it. So for him, when he thought about himself, he thought, I'm just a screw up. I've gone too far, I've made too many mistakes. So that must be what God thinks about when he thinks about me. But if you notice, underlying all of this is the assumption of what you do. The assumption of what you do. And God has never been primarily um, oriented or occupied with what you do, but rather the who. More than the do, it's always been the who. Who are you? Whose are you? Who do you belong to? When I was in seminary, uh, I had a professor named Dr. Demarest, and he wrote, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding you, just probably a stack of theological works this tall. So this was a guy who had more degrees than, you know, than, than a thermometer. And he had more intelligence than all of us in the room. He had studied more Greek and Hebrew than just about any of us. And he would still stand up in front of our class and he would say, at the end of the day, the deepest end of the theological pool is that God loves you. 
that God loves you, that the God of the universe, when he looks upon you, it's love. Not because of what you do, but who you are. Because of whose you are. And so it's the simplest truth. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. It's the simplest truth even for a toddler to understand. But it'll take a lifetime to truly comprehend. It'll take a lifetime to work its way down into the marrow of our bones. And to work itself out. And yet this gets a little squishy and a little awkward when we talk about the love of God, when the love of God is put forth, does, does God really love me or is that permeated throughout our conversations? It tends to start to feel like a junior high dance. It gets a little squishy, a little awkward, a little weird. How do I move and navigate inside of this thing? Because if we stop, if we pause, if we turn off Netflix and the noise of life and we really consider that God, God loves me, God loves me. It leaves us vulnerable. It leaves us exposed. And I don't know about you, but there's, there's something inside me that immediately wells up and I go to all the yeah buts. All the yeah buts. As if I knew myself better than God knows me. God knows you better than even you know you and he still said worthy. He still said loved. When Good Friday happens, God is not going to the return line wanting his money back. And yet, here we are in Luke 15, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, and I think for good reason. And Jesus, once again, is going about his, his day, and he's attracting people from all walks of life. What I love about Jesus is he's attracting tax collectors, the worst of the worst, those who have gone as far from God as you can possibly imagine, the worst of the worst. Those who are nothing like Jesus seem to like Jesus. Those who are nothing like Jesus still seem to like Jesus. Isn't that interesting? There's a message, there's something attractive, even about what he's saying, that those who are nothing like him would still like him. And so once again, a crowd is gathering around and Jesus is stirring things up and he's gonna to begin to speak to both the Pharisees, the tax collectors, and the sinners. So I'm gonna look real briefly, starting in verse eight, just real briefly at the, the first parable and then we'll spend the bulk of our time looking at the prodigal son. But here he is, Jesus stands up and he says, all of you guys are continuing to wonder, you're trying to figure out this whole God thing and you religious Pharisees, and here's what Pharisees just means. It means religious separatists. Religious separatists. This means when they look at God, when they look at what it looks like to be in good relationship or communion with God, their idea is, is they contain themselves, almost as if sin is a plague and it's out there. And if I can quarantine myself off, if I can live inside a bubble, if I can get away from everything out there, then in some way I'll be okay. But that's not the truth, is it? The problem is, is that sin is not out there, but it's in us. It's part of our very nature. There are all sorts of things that I do constantly that I don't want to do. I, I'm driven by my own selfish ambitions and my own motives and my pride and my preoccupations. And I can wall myself off from the world, but yet sin is not out there. It's in me. And I don't just need a way to quarantine myself, but I need a way to be reborn and made new. So Jesus says, verse 8, telling them a story. I love, Jesus doesn't just, you know, come pulling out and say, like, you're wrong, you're awful, get it right. He actually tells stories. So it's almost like this passive aggressive story time with Jesus. Let me rebuke you through story. This is what he says. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? 
And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Have you ever lost something that's really important to you? Maybe you've had that experience recently. Um, a couple of years ago, I was traveling just on a special trip with my, my oldest daughter, Grace, to Chicago. And then on the way back, we were flying southwest. And I don't know if you've tried this, but getting off a plane with a kid, it's the equivalent of getting in and out like a NASCAR pit stop. Like it's just pandemonium, it's chaos, it's crazy. And inevitably, we leave behind her most prized possessions in the world, her little blankie and baby Jaguar. And those two get left on the plane and we don't realize it until we get home. And you know, she needs these things to go to sleep. She needs these things to feel whole. They are her most precious possessions. And so my wife, Crystal, she gets on the phone. She's calling Southwest. She's begging them. She's saying when they swept the plane, did they find this? Did they find this? They're going and sending people out, searching the plane, trying to find out what flight it was. And lo and behold, some incredibly kind, I'm sure parental custodian, they would understand our predicament, like this must belong to a child and it's precious. Set those aside. We ran off to the airport, we got him back, and when we brought him home, there was, there was just such this look in our eyes, this, this sense of rejoicing of what was lost had been found, of what she really wanted, of what she cherished. She, she got it back, she thought it was gone. You, you're the little blankie. You're the lost coin. And God comes, he comes all the way down from, from the throne of heaven in the person of Jesus, the infinite. The infinite God becomes an infant. Imagine that, the infinite becomes an infant and comes and sweeps the universe to find you in the dirtiest, dusty places of life and rejoices when you're found. This is the heart of God. God does not have a posture of go ahead, make yourself clean, identify yourself and come back, but rather I'm gonna come bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. I imagine the sinners as they're sitting around, the tax collectors are like, well, we like that story. That's a good one. That's a great story. The Pharisees are like, yeah, not so much. You got another one? Jesus is like, I do. I do have another story for you. Let's try this one on for size. And this is what he says in verse 11. This is known as the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me my share of property that is coming to me. All right, I don't know if you know this, uh, and this really doesn't apply to just their culture. I think this is across the board. But if you go to your parent before they're dead and say, I want my stuff, that's wrong. <laughs> that's bad form, okay? <laughs> I mean, this doesn't, I don't, have to try, I don't have to explain a lot. That's wrong. And all that's packed into that activity, right? I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. Can you get out of the way? You are interfering in what I love most. I don't want your rules. I don't want your law. I don't want your love. I don't want your authority. I want freedom. I want to be on my own. And isn't this such the cry of the human heart? Isn't this often such the cry of our day and age? Isn't this the very predicament of humanity? God, not your will be done, but my will be done. God, I still want all your stuff. I love this earth. I love this world. I love food. I love friendship. I love all the things that you've created. But if you could just step aside and move out of the way, we'll get down to the business of real living. And yet God tolerates us. Can you believe that? as we smack him in the face and say, I wish you were dead. Even enough where we put that on magazine covers and think that's interesting. 
And so what does the father do? I'm sure with a broken heart, he divides his property between his two sons. And this would have been a laborious task. Most likely his assets were in real estate. So those are hard assets. You've got to sell those and he's probably selling them at a loss and he's sending his son out. And so not many days later, verse 13, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Because what do you do when you want to get away from your dad? What do you do when you want to get away from his rules? What do you do when you want to get away from his interference? You go far, far, far away. You run. What do you do when you want to live it up? You run. What do you do when you want to hide? You run. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. I don't have to describe reckless living, right? Oh, maybe I do. Maybe, maybe we're, we're in Texas, so we're all good moral people, right? But maybe some of you, we're doing reckless living even this week. And you're in church right now. This is just the place for you to be. But reckless living. Saying, God, I'm done with you. I'm going to go with Solomon, and I'm going to test every pleasure under the sun and see if that's where true joy and satisfaction and purpose and happiness lies I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to try it out. And he makes a mess of things. Life falls apart. So much so as we find out later in the story as he's partying and partying and partying and squandering away his father's inheritance. He even spends that money on prostitutes. One author who I love commenting on the prodigal son says this, we are the prodigal son every time we look for unconditional love outside of the father. So every place, every space, every crevice, every relationship, every, uh, every experience, all the stuff, every bottle, every needle, every whatever you want to do when you're looking for a place that will affirm you and accept you, you're the prodigal son. You're saying this must be where it truly lies, where I'll finally find that sense where I belong, unconditional love, where I can be known, where I can be exposed, where I can be vulnerable and I can be accepted, but yet it lets you down in disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And I'm sure those of you have had those wild Friday nights where you felt uninhibited and then woke up on Saturday morning with a big pile of regret, you know that very reality. What once felt freeing then felt confining. And that's exactly what happens for him. What begins as total freedom, inevitably, because this is just the way life works. Give it enough time. Give it enough seasons, especially if you're young. Just live a little bit more life and you'll see famine comes around. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. Here's the thing. Usually when you're in reckless living, you're not into budgets, right? You're not doing a whole bunch of Dave Ramsey spreadsheet activity. You're reckless living, right? You're not like watching, hey, I want to make sure I have all my bills paid, paying down. It's wreck, we're doing it up. This is, this is, you only live once territory. And so what does he do? He's destitute, famine is hit. He's squandered all of his father's money. He's wasted all of his inheritance. And so what does he do? He hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country. So he's in a Gentile place. He's in a place that's a foreign country. He's in a place that's far from home. And he hires himself out. He just gets any job he can because he's literally starving. He's destitute. And he's sent into the fields to feed pigs. To feed pigs. You gotta think about it. Jesus is speaking to Jewish people. This would have been outrageous. This would have been the worst of the worst. I mean, you're usually not into pig farming when you're Jewish. You know, there's some, old, there's some Old Testament laws even against that. 
And yet here he is, he's trying to make things work out. He's even willing to be a pig farmer, but it even intensifies from there. And it says, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So here he is, he's at complete rock bottom. He's farming pigs and he's eating the pig food. He's at rock bottom. Have you been at rock bottom? Have you been broken? Sometimes those very places, and those of you who have really walked through the shadow of the valley of death, you know this when you've walked through the deepest valleys, that that rock bottom, that place where God actually destroys you is most often his saving grace. Because God, once again, is not trying to pay you back. He's not in the business of punishment, but Jesus is trying to bring you back. If he was trying to pay us back, we would not be sitting here this morning. We'd all got lightning bolts a long time ago but rather he's trying to bring you back. And so rock bottom is a great place to be because finally you realize you've exhausted all of your capabilities, all of your resources. There's nothing within you that can solve this. You have run the foolish course of trying to be your own savior and it just won't work. Now you can imagine at this point, the Pharisees are probably like, we like this part of the story. Good for him. He's getting what he deserves. You reap what you sow. That's exactly what should happen to reckless living people. Congratulations, Jesus. Finally, you're coming around to seeing that people need to do the right thing. They need to obey or they're going to be punished. Jesus says, I'm not finished. So the, the, the young prodigal son, he comes to himself and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven and before me. So he's, he's doing the math. He's doing the calculation. He's like, it can't get much worse than this. I'd rather do the walk of shame back home and have to admit in complete humility that I've blown it, that I've made a mess of it. Because even when I remember my dad, my dad was still a pretty good guy. I mean, we had lots of people that worked for us and he treated them better than I'm being treated right now. So even me being a hired hand, even me being someone who's hired on his staff, that's a better existence than what I have right now as a pig farmer eating pig food. I'm broken. I guess I'll just go home. I'll grovel my way back. I'll take my lumps and I'll be known as the family failure. I'll accept my identity and we'll move on down the road. And here, this might be the saddest part in the story when I think about it, verse 19. He's practicing his speech. Have you ever had that moment where you've really blown it? Where you feel like there's no going back, but yet somehow you're gonna have to grovel or go back or humble yourself or feel shameful or humiliate, so you begin to practice that speech. You begin to go over your inner dialogue or narrative. That's what he's doing here. He's going, I'll just tell him, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I realize I've blown it. I've gone way too far. It makes total sense that I would be removed from the family. But would you at least treat me as a hired servant? Can we at least do that? Can I at least be a hired servant? Identity. Sonship's gone. Servant, maybe. I'll grovel my way back. He thinks he's gone too far. And why this is so sad to me is, is, is our God, God the Father, is not in the business of hiring employees. He's in the business of adopting children. There are no help-wanted signs in the house of God. There is nothing you can do to merit or earn your place back into the family of God. 
And the fact that a lot of us, when we think about what God thinks about us, we think that he wants us to get, get busy. We think that God's interviewing us for a job. And we're going, hire me, hire me, hire me. I know what I've done. I know what my past looks like. I know all the mistakes I've made. I know all my shortcomings. So there must be something I can do to earn my way back in. Sonship, that's way too good to be true. Being adopted into the family of God, absolutely impossible. But would you at least hire me? There's got to be a way I can pay penance, that I can work this off. And if I do enough, just maybe, just maybe I can have some of the scraps from your table. That's karma, isn't it, folks? So he has his job proposal in hand. He's got his speech down. And you could just imagine that self-talk as he walks his way back. Oh, gosh. Dad's probably going to kill me. He's going to judge me. I, I certainly have at least five lectures in front of me. Maybe I'll get to sleep out in the barn with, you know, some of the animals. Everyone's going to know what a loser I am. I mean, he's running through the entire script, and we do that too. We run through the script. We run through the narrative of all of our shortcomings and the way the world might see us, and those become identity statements that are much more powerful and poignant to the places and spaces of our souls than loved and adopted by God. And they become what we believe about ourselves, and then we act out of that belief. And then we have maybe one of the best verses in all of the Bible in verse 20. And he, the father, and he arose and came to the father. So he's on his way back. But while he's still a long way off, the father saw him. So he's a long way off still and the father sees him. What does this mean? This means the father always had an eye out for him. This means that even all this time in rebellion, the father was daily getting up and looking on the horizon and saying, was there any chance would my boy just come home? Would he come back? Would he return? He's got his eye on the horizon, just waiting, longing, hoping that his boy would return. And he felt compassion. So this old man, this father, this, this man of great stature, he sees his boy, he sees his lost son, and he feels compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. This isn't completely undignified. I mean, old Jewish men do not run. This is the activity of, of maybe the Romans or the Greeks as they would compete in the Olympics or of little children, but dignified statesmen and elders do not run. But you know, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what everyone thinks about him. He doesn't care about his status. He doesn't care about the cost. He's running to see his boy. He will be undignified. And notice, it says he feels compassion. If you guys have a study Bible with you, in some of your Bibles, there might be a footnote at the bottom that actually says this is the Greek word splankna. Splankna, which is a great word. It's just fun to say too, isn't it? Splankna. And it's the, the word for guts or entrails. You're like, why the word guts or entrails for compassion? Because this is a compassion. And, and when you would think about the Hebrews, the Hebrews thought more of their emotions, not coming from their heart, but their guts. From their guts. Like this sense of true anguish or loss, or if you've, you've, you've experienced great pain, you feel it in your gut. And his, his stomach is wrenched as he looks at his boy and he sees him coming home and he has incredible compassion. He's welling up with joy. He's coming alive and he runs and there's no lecture, there's no spiel, there's no new rules, there's no punishment, there's no whatever you would think would come with this moment. What a fool, I told you so, how could you possibly do this? There's none of that, it's just, you're my boy and I'm, I'm so glad to see you. 
I think the Jesus Storybook Bible actually translates this the best. And it says, and the father fell on his neck and could not stop kissing him. He's just, there's my boy. And I'm just, I'm tackling him. And I'm kissing him because I love him. And I don't care who sees and I don't care what it costs me. And I don't care what it's already cost me. That is my son. And the son said to him, he's got to be freaked out. He's got to be going, what's going on? Okay, of course, like there, there's a nice greeting. We're glad you're back. But surely there's, there's going to be a backhand surprise waiting, right? Like there's going to be some other, you know, punishment or, or, or just lecture or whatever on the other side of it. So what does he do? Well, he gets out his speech. He's rehearsed it, right? You may as well not waste a good speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. So he's got repentance down. He understands that. That's part of it. He's come to terms with what he's done. He's come to terms with the devastation of his actions. He sees that he's sinned against God and he's sinned against his father. He sees all of that. And he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called his son. So he's making that identity statement. He's saying, I bet, Father, when you think about me, you think that I'm not worthy to be called your son. So I'm just gonna preempt that. I'm gonna beat you to the point and I'm just gonna name it. I'm gonna call it for what it is. And you gotta imagine, he's just getting wound up in a speech. And what does the father do in verse 22? He interrupts him. He interrupts him. He says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. He says, I don't wanna hear that. I don't wanna hear that servant talk. I don't wanna hear about how you don't think you're worthy. I don't even care about your speech. I'm just so glad you're home. His son shows up and it says, Father says, bring the best robe and put him on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. I mean, if you want to know what kind of reckless living he was really into, when you show back up home, shoeless and naked, you've been partying really hard, right? <laughs> been partying really hard. So we got to give him a robe and some shoes, okay? And you've been eating pig food. We probably should deal, deal with that too. But he also puts a ring on his hand. He puts it, and this is likely the family crest. He's immediately initiating him back in. He's reminding him of his identity. You just got done telling me that you should only be a servant, but I'm going to remind you, no, you're a son. You're a son. How could that possibly ever change? See, the father's heart, we cannot lose sight of the father's heart. When the father thinks about you, he thinks Hosea 11, what he said about the nation of Israel. I, I taught you to walk. I picked you up. How could I ever walk away from you? I counted your little toes when you were a baby. I, I held you and walked you around when you were a toddler. I love you and nothing can change that you are my boy. Because first and foremost, I don't care about what you do, but I care about who and whose you are. And you're mine. You're mine. And not that his sin doesn't matter, not that the devastation doesn't matter, not that his wayward behavior doesn't matter. That's not what's being implied by this passage. But what it's saying is that primarily, if we lose sight of this, if we don't see this, what matters most is the identity. Is the identity. Because if you don't get it, if we don't come to terms, if we don't constantly and daily and regularly get the gospel, we beat it deep down into our souls, into our splankna, we will constantly be wondering, does God love me? What does he think about when he thinks about me? God thinks loved. He thinks redeemed. He thinks child. He thinks free. He thinks saved. He thinks you are the apple of his eye. He loves you. God loves you. 
And so the father says, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. The fattened calf, this is the fanciest, most expensive meat that would be available. He's basically saying, bring the filet mignon, bring the best of the best, let's bring it out and let's party. And you gotta think the son, he's a little apprehensive. The younger son, the prodigal son, he's sitting there saying to himself, haven't I partied enough? Like, we're gonna do another one? Really? <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna, par- oh. so he's gotta be still apprehensive. He's thinking, okay, my father wants to celebrate, but that's exactly what you do. Why? Because verse 24 tells us, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. And this is the entire gospel. This is the purpose of the story of the Bible, that God would take dead things and make them alive. That God would take people that are so far gone, that people that think they've ruined it, that they've messed up, that they've made too many mistakes, and he would bring them back to life. He wouldn't just give them a fix it up program. He wouldn't just tell them how to make themselves better. He wouldn't just give them a life plan or a plan of action or a New Year's resolution, but he'd give them a new nature. He'd give them a new life and he'd redeem them. That's what our God does. And people who often say, God still doesn't do miracles. Every time he saves someone, he's doing a miracle. He's taking a dead person and he's making them alive. When you watch a Christian be baptized, you are watching a miracle. You're watching a heart of stone become a heart of flesh. You are watching the Holy Spirit take dead people and make them alive. You are watching God take slaves and make them sons. (laughs) That's, That's what God thinks about when he thinks about you. That's what God thinks about when he thinks about you. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God, this gut-busting love that God permeates upon his people. Nothing can separate you from that love. So the older son, the older brother, he's out in the field. And a, a servant comes out and he wants to tell him what's going on. So this is what it says, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. That phrase really interests me, heard dancing. I mean, you know it's a real party when you can hear the dancing, right? I mean, it's enough that you hear the music, but the fact that you can hear the dance, unless this is like uh, that Riverwalk clog show dancing, I, I mean, Irish River, I don't know. Unless it's that, I mean, this is quite a party. I mean, I wanna go to a party where you can hear the dancing. That's a real good party. And so he's like, man, maybe it's a surprise party for me. I've been working really hard. Dad knows I'm super diligent. Unlike our younger brother, I've never made mistakes. I'm always at work. I show up on time. I make sure, you know, I take out, you know, all the trash, all that good stuff. I recycle. Uh, I do all the right things. I vote the right way. Whatever that looks like, I'm morally righteous. And a servant called to him and he said, what? Or he calls to a servant and he asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Moms and dads, isn't that all you really want? That your kids would be safe and sound? That's what God wants for you, that you would be safe and sound, that you would be safe in the grip of God's grace. But how does the brother respond? Well, verse 28 tells us, but he's angry. And he refused to go in. He wants no part of this celebration. He's angry. Can you imagine? Someone who's dead just comes back to life and you're angry. You're grumbling. You can feel the resentment. You can feel the rage in your splankna. It's bubbling up. Why? Refuse to go in. Why? So his father came out and entreated him. Verse 29, we begin to see what his problem is. 
But he answered his father, look, these many years while he's off blowing the inheritance, while he's off living it up, while he gets to do reckless living, which in my heart of hearts I wanted to do too, but I was just playing morally righteous. So now I'm angry at him. And I never disobeyed your commandment. He's telling him, I've been righteous. I've kept your law. I've done what I was supposed to do. Yet you never gave me a goat. You can almost hear the pity. You can almost hear the resentment. You never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice he doesn't say my brother. He's distancing himself. He's distancing. I mean, what kind of big brother does that? Is this hard for his little brother or he's distancing himself from him? This son of yours came home who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Once again, he's gonna say, let's not forget his sins. Let's remind him of all the mistakes he made. Let's continue to put those front and forward. He's never gonna live that down. I'm always gonna tell him of all the sin, of all the shame, of all that he's done wrong. I'm gonna make sure he wears that. What are you wearing? And you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, I think what's going on here as well is the older brother is actually a little bit mad because this fattened calf and this celebration and this party is coming at his expense. The younger brother already got his half of the inheritance. So everything that's left now would actually eventually be the older brother. So it's coming out of his portion. He's saying, not only did you give him half the stuff, but now to welcome him back, it's costing me as well because that's the stuff I would have got. Boy, is he resentful. And the father looks at him and he says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and he is now alive. He was lost and he was found. See, uh, I don't know who gives the titles in your Bible, but it's always wrong to call this story the prodigal son. Because there's, there's two lost sons. There's a younger brother who's chosen to rebel. And there's an older brother who's chose to be religious. And the father is actually entreating both of them to repent. Repent of your rebellion, younger son, and come home knowing that you're loved and that you're my son and that there's always a space at the table for you and we'll throw a feast because we celebrate what goes from death to life. And then for my son who's religious, who looks at the world and thinks that if in some ways, if you just did what was expected of you, that you were owed something, that you are superior to others, that you would repent of your religion, that you would realize that no deed or amount of good works is what keeps you in the family, but rather it's love. The older brother thought, man, I'm going to keep showing up to work on time. I'm going to do what the father asks me. But it wasn't because he felt the love of his father. It's because he knew that if he did his duty, he would be owed. One of the best indicators of having an older brother-ish spirit and mindset, which we all seep into at times, is when things don't go our way, we get bitter. When things don't go our way, we are quick to blame and to say, God, what have you done? Because deep down in the crevices of that is a, an expectation that I've done my duty. I've done what I was supposed to do. I showed up to church. I went to home group. I tithed. I did all the things that I was supposed to do and my life is still hard. That's a contract. That's not covenant, which is love. There's no contract in the kingdom of God. There is only family, fatherly love. There's only love. 
Or if you want to know you're an older brother, often what is your posture when you see someone who's made a mess of things, who's wrecked everything, still get grace? Are you bitter? Are you angry? Are you resentful? There's a spot inside of all of us, if we're really honest, where we are keeping score. Where we go, they don't deserve that. They didn't earn that. And you know what? By God's grace, none of us get what we deserve. Right? And we we should celebrate that none of us get what we deserve. Because if we got what we deserved, it would be death. But yet God comes and gives us what we never deserved. He gives us a new identity and he gives us a new family and he gives us a new nature and he gives us a new life. And this new life, this, this love is what transforms us. Not your New Year's resolutions, not your best practices. They can't transform you. The only thing that will transform you, the only thing that will drive you into obedience is realizing just how loved you've been by God. John Newton said it best. He said, our pleasure and duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And when God thinks about you, he thinks daughter, he thinks son, he thinks loved, he thinks family. And if that truth makes its way into the deepest parts of our heart, into our splankna, that'll change everything. That's the life transforming truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are exceptionally thankful that you would come and love us. that you would die on a cross and take a death that belonged to us so that we might live. That your Holy Spirit frees us to feel enslaved to our past, to our mistakes, to our brokenness, to the labels that the world is quick to thrust upon us. When the truest thing about us is that we are your kids and that you are our dad. And that when we walk the streets of heaven, Not one of us will be going, we don't belong here. But we'll know because we're loved. That's what gives us a seat at the table. And may that identity, may that truth be front and center for all of us as this year unfolds, as we face tragedy and trial and wins and losses and circumstances and celebrations and conflicts, realizing that we are first and foremost children of our heavenly father and that you know us by name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.